If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can open it to Psalm 44. So follow with me, if you will, in Psalm 44. We'll read the first eight verses. God's perfect and inspired word says this. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we boast all day long, and praise your name forever. Selah. And so again, we see in this passage of Scripture, he begins talking about the days of old. In verse 1, he says, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in the days of old. Some of us may be thinking, are my memories the days of old? And I think, you know, for some of us, they are. In my kids' perspective, my childhood are in the days of old, right? But he said, we've heard about these things. Our fathers have told us these things. So therefore, we remember these things. And so this seems like a really simple concept, but this is something that I think is really important. And to be honest with you, I think it's something that many times lacks within the church today. And because it lacks within the church today, the church finds itself in places that it ought not be. It finds itself fearful of things that it ought not be fearful of. I think even individuals have this same problem every once in a while. And so what we need to understand when he says that he remembers these things, he remembers them because it was, it was important to those people. He remembers them because they were intentional about doing this. This wasn't just some Thanksgiving dinner where they gathered together and some random stories popped up. This was intentional by their parents to teach their children the things that God had done. We need to understand that for a good part of the, of the history of Israel and for a good part of the beginning of the Word of God, these stories were communicated orally. They weren't all written down yet. It took a while for some of that to happen. And so many of those stories exist because, simply because, parents, by the command of God, told their children, their children listened. Now, if you want me to tell you how to make that happen, I'm not sure. But their children listened. They told them to their children. Their children listened, and they told them to their children, and it was passed on and passed on. And so we know the things that we know. In some cases, we have even Scripture in some cases because that has happened. Because people were faithful to teach their children the things of God. They made certain that they would remember what God has done. In Joshua chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, this is an important moment in the life of the children of Israel. And it says this, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean? 
Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And so if you remember, when, the, when God's people crossed over the Jordan, what they did was they took memorial stones and they made this memorial and they left it there. And it wasn't just a monument. It wasn't just something that was there. It wasn't some weird act of worship. The purpose of it, do you notice the purpose? They said, when your children ask you, you will be able to tell them. When your children come to this place and say, why is there a weird pile of stones? You can say, because your God went before you and parted the waters so that your ancestors could cross over into this land. They were intentional about teaching their children about the things that God had done. And because they had done that, the psalmist now can lean back on those memories and those things that he has learned and take hope. And so for us as Christians today, as parents, grandparents, again, aunts, uncles, whatever you may be, if you have influence over a child is what we like to say. And I, don't, I can't imagine that anybody here doesn't have some sort of influence over some sort of child. We need to make sure that we do two things. First, we need to make sure that we are telling our children about the things that God has done in our lives. We need to make sure that we are teaching the next generation and the next generation after that about what God has done in our lives. We need to be sharing our testimonies with our children. We need to be telling our children the, the, the way that we have seen God move and work in our lives. Your personal testimony about what God has done in your life matters, and it really matters to your children. And so we need to be willing to talk about those things. Listen, sometimes we don't like to, right? Because sometimes part of our testimony, sometimes part of our testimony is not the best. But even in those parts, that's where we see God be the best, right? And so that's where we see this is where God rescued me. This is where I went astray. This is where I struggled. And this is how God loved me. And this is how God was long-suffering. And this is how God was merciful. And this is how God was good. And this is all about God. And so we can put our focus back on that. And so we need to be willing to share those things with our children, with our grandchildren. Grandparents, I just want to remind you, challenge you in this. Your grandchildren care what you say. I'd like to ask some of mine a few more things, right? They care what you say. If you have an opportunity today, you need to tell them about what God has done in your life. You need to take that time so that they can remember, so that they can see. Listen, if there is generations of your family sitting in this place today, you have got a blessing that you don't even get. So take that opportunity. But more than this, church, more than that, and this is, I know, some of you are going to be like, oh, here we go. Here comes the preacher, right? More than this, more than telling about what God has done in your life, you need to make sure, I need to do a better job of making sure that I tell my children what God has done in this book. In this book. If you want your children and your families to be able to face adversity, struggles, trials, difficulties, 
If you want them to be able to walk through the trials of life, they must know what is in this book. They must know the stories. And listen, we're a New Testament church, right? We're, we, we live in the church age. If we are not talking about Old Testament stories, you need to be. We need to be. And upward, our upward devotions for our practice huddles have been out of Hebrews chapter 11, the hero's roll call of faith. And so it's been, it's been really cool to go back and, and to talk to those kids about uh, men like Enoch and Joshua and things like that and to be able to talk to them about, about those people and even be able to connect some of those dots about this was this person and, and his name was Israel and he had these people and now the next story now, this guy, that's because it's his great-grandson or whatever it is, right? And we, need to, and we can be able to do those things. And so we need to be teaching them. They cannot remember what they have not heard. And here's the other challenge. You cannot teach what you do not know. You have a biblical command, demand, responsibility for you to know the Word of God, to teach your children the Word of God. And if you don't know, if you come to me and say, I can't do it, I've got to have children's church because I don't know, that's not correct. Learn it. Start today. Start today. Dive in. Dive in together. Listen, we're all at a different point in our Christian walk, right? There are many of you who today could quote more scripture than I could. I can point you out. I'm not going to, but I could. I can point you out. So, right? So there, there are things that you can fall back on better than I can fall back on. I'm totally aware of that. And so we must invest ourselves in the word of God so that we can invest in the next generation in the word of God so that they can invest in the next and so that we can all collectively stand strong together. So, we must share what we've heard. And when we, know what, when we remember what we have heard, we can have hope in what we have heard. So, in verses 2 and 3, the psalmist gives a description of the things that he's talking about, the types of victories that he's talking about. He doesn't go into great detail, but he says in verses 2 and 3, you drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. And so, even in this psalm, he is remembering what God has done. You drove out the nations. You planted your people. It doesn't say that he drove them out and then he planted them and then he afflicted them. These are two different groups of people. He drove out the, the nations. He planted then his nation in his land and he afflicted the people and cast them out. They did not gain the possession by the land of their own sword nor their own arm saved them, but as your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. 
You, you, you. Eight times in two verses, he says, you or your. Here's why this matters. Because if we are going to, again, know, remember, teach the things that God has done, we have to make sure that we teach them as God has done them. Not that what we did. Not that the experience that I had or the thing that God did in me, but rather what God has done. We'll talk about something like that in a little bit more clearly in a moment, but we need to see that the psalmist recognizes that every one of these things happened by the command, the power, and the sovereign will of God. The fact that those people were drove out of the land of Canaan was by the power of God and not the power of man. The fact that that he planted his people there and enemy after enemy after enemy came against them and they stood there is by the power of God and not by man. And so, and here's why that's important. Because I don't want my children or my grandchildren or your children or your grandchildren to take hope in what you did or what, or what you think you did. I want them to take hope in what God has done. Because if they look at my life, they'll see a they'll see a failure more than not. And I, I don't want them to take hope in me. I want them to take hope in God, right? And so we have to recognize. And the other reason is this, because that's what's true. If you tell your children that you overcame all these things by your power and your strength and your might, you're lying because you didn't. You didn't. Right? God has done this. This is the power of God. This is the grace of God. This is the goodness of God. If you've seen God work in your life, it's because God has done it. If there's good in your life, it's because God has been good. And so, it's by His strength alone in verse 3. Look what he says. For they did not gain possession of land by their own strength, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance. So we see that the psalmist puts all of the credit, all of the glory onto God. This was you, this was your, you did it, you did it, you did it. But he also is quick to deflect glory away from the people. He says, he says it was not, in verse 3, they did not gain the possession of land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. It was not about them. It was all about God. But I want you to notice something in this that I think will be a bit of an encouragement as we walk through the trials and the struggles and the difficulties of life. Because we can't go back and talk this morning about every single battle and, and way that God let them possess the land and all of that. We don't have time for that this morning. But we know that the people did something, didn't they? When they, when they walked around Jericho all of those times and they walked around seven times or seven days on the seventh day, seven times, and when the walls of Jericho fell down, did everybody in Jericho just die? No. What happened? The people rushed in with their swords, right? Time and time again, God gathered his armies and, and he gathered his people. Whenever God called Gideon out to go to battle, what did he do? He 
gathered an army. So it's not like we don't do anything. It's just that God is doing it through us. So when we face trials and adversity and struggle in life, I say pick up your sword. But I say pick up your sword not in your own strength, but in the strength of God. I say, I say keep walking. I say keep moving forward. But not in your own strength, but in the power of God. I was reading the commentary, The Treasury of David. It's a, it's a commentary that Charles Spurgeon wrote and then he also added in a whole bunch of little snippets from other pastors. It's, it's, it's really good. But in the treasury of David, Spurgeon points out something about this text that's really important, I think. He said in verses 2 and 3, what we see is a picture of our salvation. The salvation of God's people is a picture of our salvation. Well, how do you mean? And Spurgeon says that it's, it's because it was all done by the power of God. Now, if you're saved today, did you have to repent? Yes. Do you have to have faith? Yes. But is that of your power and of your doing? No. No, your salvation is because God saved you because you were dead in your trespasses. So, Did the Israelites have a part? Yes. But was it really all God? Yes again, right? And so that's what we we see in this. Here's why that matters. Because our salvation, we've talked about this in a hundred different ways, but if our salvation is is the foremost bedrock part of our faith in Jesus Christ, right? Uh, Our whole worldview is shaped because we have a Savior who has saved us, who has shown us grace, who has given us mercy, who has saved us and given us life from dead. If our whole worldview is based upon that, why wouldn't we do everything else the same way? Why would God save us in one way and then expect us to go through trials in another? Why would he save us in one way and expects us to deal with our sorrows in another? Why is God powerful enough to save me on his own, my soul for eternity, but somehow he's not powerful enough to save me from the struggle and the sorrow of life? That's ludicrous. But we do that, don't we? We say, God, I'm going to trust you to save my soul for all of eternity. It's all your work, right? Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We believe that, don't we? I hope we do. We believe that. And yet, if we believe that about our salvation, why don't we believe that about other things in our lives? And so, what we see is that this is all about what God has done. He doesn't even mention Joshua in here, right? Joshua's an important piece of Israelite history. He was was at the forefront of those happening. He was the lead man. doesn't even get mentioned. Why? Because it's not about Joshua. It's about God. It's about what God has done. So we see now the result of this. And here's, 
here's the encouragement or more of the encouragement today to make sure that we do these sorts of things. Look in verses 4 through 8. How does he respond? He says in verses 1 through 3 that he remembers, he knows what God has done. He lists out some of the things that God has done. And this is 4 through 8. He says this, you are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will trust not in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God, we boast all day long and praise your name forever. You can almost hear his faith being increased in those verses, can't you? We didn't read it today, but I would encourage you to read it before next Sunday, verses 9 through 26. This psalmist is in a bad, bad way. This, this psalm, it takes a hard fall after this. It is difficult to read, right? It takes a hard fall. He's in a bad way, but even in the midst of this horrible situation, what does he say? He says, you are my king, and it's your command. That's my favorite part of this whole thing. Listen to verse 4. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. At the sound of your voice, victory happens. At the sound of your sovereign will, at your sovereign time, Victory happens for your people because you are in charge. Because you're the victor. Because you are all powerful. Command victories for Jacob. His faith is increased. He says, through you, not through my own strength, not through my own bow. It's interesting that around those times that these things were happening, the bow was like a pretty new invention. It was like the most high-tech thing you could get, right? And he says, I'm not going to trust in the best technology for war. I'm going to trust in you. At your command, victory is given. Look what he says in verse 5. Through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. He will give victory through him, through his name. He will not trust in himself. Why does he not trust in himself? Because he remembers that Joshua didn't trust in himself. He remembers that his forefathers didn't trust in themselves. He remembers that his God has saved them by his mighty right arm. He has not forgotten that. You see the way that that changes his, his outlook, the way that it changes his perspective on the troubles that he is in? He's as low as a man can be. And he says, you're my God. I'm riding with you. It's a terrible analogy. But last Sunday evening, at halftime, Some of you were like, I'm riding with Patrick Mahomes, baby. He's bringing us back. I got all the confidence in the world in him. I'm riding. He, he's he's going to bring us back. That's where I was. 
Here's a question. Why did you believe that? Why did you believe that he was going to bring him back in the second half? You believed it because he'd done it over and over and over and over again. But your, your steadfastness, your faithfulness was shaped by what you had seen and what you knew. And the psalmist's steadfastness, his faithfulness, his trust in God has been shaped by what he knows. Not even, I want you to understand this, not even by what he has personally experienced, but just what he has been told. Just what he has learned, just what he knows about God. And so because of those things, he stands firm. If you want, again, your children to stand firm and our families and our church to stand firm, we have to know those things. We have to teach those things. The last thing is this. Look what it says in verse 8. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. I love that. In God we boast. There's a, there's a confidence in God and in Him alone. Even when it seems like He's losing. Even when He's down 10. Right? He, it seems like He's being beaten. And yet, he says, in God we boast. In God we boast. In God we trust. And we praise your name. We praise your name not simply based upon the circumstance that I find myself in. Listen, church, we can't be people who praise God only because of the circumstance with which we find ourselves. We must be people who praise God because of who God is. He says, I'm going to praise you even though my circumstance right now stinks. But I know who you are. And I know what you've done. And I trust in what you will do. And so because of that, I will praise you. He believes that even though he is beaten down, just, just look in verse 9. Look what he says in verse 9. But you have cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go out with our armies. Verse 10, you make us turn back from the enemy. And those who hate us have taken the spoil for themselves. You had given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. He goes on and on and on. He says, we're being destroyed. We are being destroyed. And yet I know that you will be victorious. There's a hope for us in that as well. There's a hope for the church in that as well. It's the same promise that Jesus gives the church. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. If you look at our culture today, if you look at our nation today, in many cases it seems like the church is losing. It seems like the enemy's winning. Our church is closing their doors all over the place. A church in our own association closed its doors just a few weeks ago. Our church is closing their doors. There are churches that are following false gospels. There's all sorts of craziness today. It looks like we're 
it looks like we're going to lose, we won't lose. Not because you're strong, not because your bow is tuned up, but because our God wins. Because he's undefeated. Because he's never lost. And even in the darkest, deepest struggles in our lives, we can praise God because we know. We know what he's done.